Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And I've got a great guest today. I am joined by Van Lu, Global Head of Currency at Russell Investments. Van, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Galen. It's nice to be here. Let's dive right in. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast, Dan, is I heard you talk at an industry event recently about your preparations for the uncleared margin rules. I thought it was really interesting because I have, for my sins, sat through quite a few UMR panels in recent years. And I've noticed they tend to feature service providers more than the people actually impacted by it. So I thought it was really interesting that they had you on there and you made some really interesting points. Listening to you, I was really struck by how much work you've done over a long period of time in preparation for UMR. From your perspective, what's been the biggest lift around these incoming rules? I don't want to take too much credit uh, (laughs) for this, because as, as the currency management team, we've benefited a great deal from the work that our derivatives trading desk has done, who are leading this effort for Russell Investments. So some of my colleagues on that team, they started thinking about this as early as 2012, when the first consultation papers came out right after the global financial crisis. But then I would say we've stepped up our preparations very much over the last three years. So there's like a project team, Uncleared Margin Rules, that brings together risk, compliance, legal, trading, So we reviewed all of our documentation, engaged with regulators, industry bodies, and counterparties. But the big lift, as you call it, was actually to build the data and technical infrastructure to calculate our AANA. That's an acronym that will probably crop up more often, the average aggregated notional amount, which determines whether you are in scope for moving margin or not. And so the big lift was to get that in place and monitor the initial margin thresholds for our own fund entities and our clients. And FX is a, is a curious case here because physically delivered FX forwards count towards the gross notional thresholds, but they are actually not in scope for posting of initial margin or variation margin for that matter. So at Russell Investments, we feel we are as ready as we should be at this stage, but clearly I think more work still needs to be done for ourselves and our clients leading up to the next phases of the UMR this year and in 2022. So I want to pick up on that point because another thing you said during the other panel session that I referenced that struck me was just how much work you've done, not just for Russell to prepare for this, but with your clients to help them prepare for this. What would you say was kind of the level of awareness amongst your client base around UMR? Because as you say, you know, you've been looking at this since 2012 when the initial consultation papers came out. So what was the awareness level amongst your customers and what have been kind of the key areas you've been helping your clients with in regards to UMR? Sure. Yeah, we, we have a mix of asset owner and asset manager clients. And one special aspect of Russell is that we're running derivatives overlays for them. 
so that's part of our business, which is maybe not the usual funds business. Very importantly, we are in constant communication with those FX overlay and other overlay clients about new regulations, what it means for them. I would say that a few of the clients are where they need to be, but more generally, I think there could be greater awareness and greater preparedness. So how do we help them as their overlay manager? Our client base mainly needs help with data for the AANA calculations. So where we manage kind of where we see the entire asset allocation, or we have looked through on all of the derivatives, we can monitor the client's derivatives exposure and tell them whether they are approaching or exceeding material swaps exposure that would trigger the threshold level for posting of margin. And then we can assist them in establishing the initial margin process. I mean, they could go to their custodian for that information, but often it's not presented in the way that it needs to be. And at the end of the day, clients need to calculate these AA and A figures and to know which category they're in. And that's where we are there to help them provide advice and the data. You talked there about advising clients. Moving beyond UMR for a moment, do you see clients increasingly looking towards Russell in almost more of a, a consultative role now when it comes to FX? I think that's always been the case to some degree for overlay management because we see our clients at a plan level and we see their entire asset allocation. Of course, they get guidance from their consultants and other advisors, but we are often closest to implementation issues and regulatory issues. And the consultative approach starts at the launch of the mandate where we help with picking the right parameters and continues throughout the lifetime you know, providing market color and you know, talking through the impact of regulatory changes. One example I can give is EMEA, the European regulation and the collateralization of FX forwards. So around 2017, when FX forwards were going to be collateralized under EMEA, we advised our clients on how to adapt to that change. We were a bit worried that some of the smaller asset owners would be discouraged from currency hedging because of the operational burden of moving collateral, and that would be a bad outcome. In the end, the regulator exempted deliverable forwards from variation margin. But then again, some of our clients voluntarily chose to collateralize their FX exposures just to reduce credit risk. And I think that will stand them in good stead if they need to move initial margin under UMR, if and when it comes to it. Another topic that I wanted to talk to you about is an article that you published fairly recently looking at currency hedging. And in the article, which is very good, and I would encourage everyone to go out and read, you talk about different approaches that investors can take towards currency hedging. Based on your conversations with investors, what do you think, broadly speaking, their takeaways from 2020 were with regards to how they should be hedging and managing their currency exposures? First thing I would say is that most of our currency hedging clients are based in Europe. So they were obviously glad that they were currency hedged in 2020 because the US dollar was weak you know, <laughs> yeah. against the euro, the Swiss franc, and so on and so forth. However, that's a cyclical thing, and it might go the other way this year. 
The important thing is that currency hedging dampens volatility from international investments during a period that was very turbulent in the markets when COVID hit. The other important takeaway from 2020 was that currency hedges could be implemented and maintained even when markets were quite dislocated during March and April of last year. So the currency basis, that's the cost of hedging USD back to other currencies, widened very substantially during that period, as did the spreads to transact. But the markets normalized really, really quickly. And this is thanks to central bank intervention and especially central bank liquidity swaps that backstopped the market for US dollar funding and also calmed down the currency forward market. So I think the other good lesson from 2020 is that central banks are there to keep the funding markets functional, which also links with the FX forward markets, which means that we can smoothly implement these currency hedging overlays with FX forwards. So if that was the thinking in 2020, what do you think that the current environment in 2021 says about how people should be approaching hedging? The most important feature about the current environment is that we have close to zero interest rates for all of the developed markets. But, but will it stay that way? I, yeah, <laughs> I think, well, there, there's some, some speculation about the Fed potentially raising rates. But yeah, we believe that it will stay that way for a considerable time. And that means that the interest rate cost or gain from currency hedging is small and shouldn't be a consideration. Prior to COVID, the US dollar had quite a big interest rate advantage against the other currencies. So I think from an interest rate cost perspective, it was more expensive for Euro or Swiss investors to hedge US dollars. And I'd say that's kind of more a tactical consideration in terms of strategically deciding whether you should hedge your currency exposure, how much you should hedge. I would basically ask three questions. What's your base currency? Which assets do you have internationally? And how does the currency exposure kind of interact with the rest of the portfolio? Just as a rule of thumb, I would say investors should generally hedge their international fixed income exposure because the currency volatility can easily swamp the return volatility from the underlying fixed income investments. And when, when it comes to equity, it varies by base currency. If you have a what we call a safe haven currency that's picked the Swiss franc, then you should probably also have a high hedge ratio for your uh, equity investments. And then I want to talk about the specific types of hedging that you reference in the article. You note in it that some academics have referred to static currency hedging as a quote-unquote free lunch. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain why? Yeah, it's a bit of a provocative title because our common saying is that the only free lunch in finance is diversification. <laughs> so I think this free lunch term was in the title of a paper by Perold and Schulman. And I, I think the upshot of the analysis, which I would generally agree with, is that currency hedging reduces portfolio volatility without giving up returns. That is, you get a benefit of lower risk without the cost of sacrificing the return in the long run. One thing to note is that they looked at it from a U.S. perspective, which is important because the U.S. dollar is what we call a safe haven currency, which means that during bad times, when the stock markets crash, the U.S. dollar often goes up against most other currencies. 
that might not be universally true for all base currencies, which I mentioned earlier. So I would put pre-lunch in quotation marks, but there's a grain of truth to what they say. And how does dynamic hedging differ from this in terms of both functionality and benefits? So in a static currency hedge, the hedge ratio stays constant, let's say 100% or 50%, often based on long-run analysis. And the goal is risk reduction, not return enhancement. So over short to medium-term periods, the static hedge can underperform or outperform the unhedged portfolio. But over a full cycle, the return impact should be small. In a dynamic hedging strategy, the hedge ratio can change over time. And often it changes based on signals of how attractive currencies are, for example, valuations or interest rate differences, price trends, and other factors. And so the purpose of the dynamic hedging strategy is to generate some extra return versus a static hedge or versus being unhedged while maintaining the risk reduction benefit of hedging over the full cycle. So just to be very clear, this is an active strategy. And the risk is that you know it underperforms versus a static hedge if the signals don't work well over a particular period of time. So any asset owner who considers dynamic hedging needs to be able to tolerate that occasional underperformance. Okay. And you also, in the article, mentioned a re-emerging interest in absolute return currency strategies. What are these strategies trying to achieve and how are asset owners using them? So absolute return currency strategies try to generate returns from taking currency positions in a more flexible way. So you can think about strategy, hedging strategy are always linked to the investor's underlying currency exposure from the physical international assets. And hedging tries to modulate the existing exposure, whereas absolute return strategies are independent from the existing asset allocation. And we actually see quite a long-standing interest in absolute return currency strategies in Japan, interestingly. And I think the main reason for that is the Japanese experience with zero interest rates over the last two decades. So using currencies to earn a yield, which doesn't exist in Japan or hasn't existed for a long time. And now that interest rates throughout the developed world have gone to zero, and in my view are likely to stay there for a while, We also see renewed interest in return-seeking currency strategies in other regions. So I think one rationale that I would agree with is that when economic differences between countries can't express themselves in interest rates, maybe they can express themselves in exchange rate movements and there's more scope to make returns from foreign exchange markets. I see. So what's interesting is you've just laid out a few different approaches to currency hedging. Now, of course, another option is to not hedge at all. And I've heard arguments for this. I've, I've heard people talk both on the investor side and, and on the kind of corporate side, where the view is sometimes either over a long enough timeline, the currency exposure evens out, or simply they're not currency experts and it's a confusing market for them. It's not their core competence. They don't want to get involved with it. Now, in your article, you argue that amongst all these different approaches to currency hedging, the worst thing that someone can do is simply ignore their currency explosions. That's the worst option out of all of them. Why is that? So this view that you mentioned that currency movements eventually wash out in the long run, 
this view is actually not an argument for ignoring currency exposure <laughs> because it means that in the short intermediate term, they can swing around a lot and exchange rate movements can have a large impact on the returns from global investments. I mentioned earlier that in the fixed income space, the volatility from FX can completely swamp the fluctuations you get from the fixed income investments. And since you can do currency hedging using FX forwards at very low cost, and it has a significant risk reduction benefit for the short to intermediate term, we recommend that investors take a closer look at it. You know, they may still decide that their currency exposure is too small to matter, or that they're willing to bear the additional risk, or that they have better uses for their risk budget than an active currency strategy. But ignoring currency means ignoring the potential to reduce risk and or add returns from the FX markets. Van, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really great, interesting discussion. I hope you'll come back on the podcast soon at some time. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much, Galen. And to our listeners, thank you very much. Please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T Podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.